You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, An Anchor for the Soul. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. So I just got back, actually last night, from a trip to Hungary and Ukraine. And uh, I was there with Mike Payne, the worship leader, worship pastor here, and uh, with Travis Hergert, who oversees missions and outreach for us. And Luke Hansen was with us as well. And we went over there to visit some of our missionaries. And Mike and I taught at a conference in Kiev for pastors and leaders. And it was just a great trip. Uh, These people that we partner with and support are doing some really great things. There was a post about it yesterday. Travis posted on the city. If you haven't checked that post, he went into a lot of detail about what we did and some really exciting things. Like one of the church planters we work with over there has a vision. They're going to try and start 30 churches just in the city of Kiev in the next five years. So it's a big vision. And so they need a lot of prayer and they need uh, even even helping hands, people to pray about going over there. And so I just encourage you to be praying for uh, these ministry partners. And I love the fact that our ministry at Whitefields is so much more than just what happens here on Sunday mornings. You know, we also have stuff going on throughout the week here in Longmont, but we also are involved with things even halfway across the world. And God's using the donations that you give, the time and energy that you put in here, and and the prayers that you pray to make an impact worldwide. And that is a great and exciting thing to be a part of. So thank you for praying for us as we were on this trip. And I just encourage you to continue, you know, finding out more information about these ministry partners and missionaries that we support. And, uh, you know, I would encourage you also to pray about going this summer on our mission trip to Hungary. You know, one of the things that I remember as a young man, I went to Hungary. I was invited by my pastor to join him. And I went to Hungary, and I was 18 years old, and I went there, and I came away from that trip with this heavy impression. And the impression was this. If the body of Christ is this worldwide body, and there were different parties, we have a role to play in that body. And the Bible calls it the body of Christ. So we have a role to play in this global community of believers, people who are being redeemed and saved and following Jesus, disciples of Jesus. And so what we get to do is we get to partner with other parts of the body to see God's work done all over the world, to see people come to the knowledge of Jesus and to be set free spiritually as they come to know Jesus and believe in the gospel. And one of the convictions I came away with is that it's it's really almost an obligation of those parts that that are strong to support those parts that are weak. And so I would just encourage you to consider that and, uh, and really pray about going on that trip this summer and being involved in some of the missionary activities that we're involved with here at Whitefields. Let's get into our study today. For the past few months, we've been studying through the letter to the Hebrews. This is one of the greatest books in the Bible because what it does is it links together the Old Testament and the New Testament and explains to us how the whole Bible has a cohesion. It's one story, and that story is all about Jesus. So next Sunday we will be concluding the study of Hebrews and then the Sunday after that we'll be beginning our two-week series for Palm Sunday and Easter. And again just want to encourage you to pray about who you want to invite to celebrate uh, Jesus' resurrection with you uh, here at Whitefields. It's a great opportunity to invite friends and family or people who aren't Christians you know who don't usually go to church. Easter is a time when many people are open to darkening the doors of a church maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time in a long time. So do pray about that. 
After that, we're going to be doing another series that's a little bit different. We're going to be taking a few weeks to do a series called The Trouble Is. And in that series, we're going to be looking at some of the biggest hurdles to, that people have or experience in embracing Christianity and coming to faith in Jesus. And maybe there are some questions that you yourself struggle with, or maybe there are people you know, and they have expressed to you that they struggle with some things, and there are some issues that they would like to have answers to. Well, we, our hope is that by giving some answers, we can remove some of the barriers, and we can help people to embrace the gospel and trust in Jesus wholeheartedly. Today we're going to begin our service by reading our text, and I'm going to read part of it. It's a little bit longer text, so I'm going to choose a few verses to read, and our text comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 29. I'll start in verse 14 and go from there. Verse 14 says this, Hebrews 12, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Verse 16, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits and the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the words of the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this time together as your people to study your word. Lord, we pray that as we do so, Lord, you would speak to us, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds, that you would show us how this text emphasizes Jesus and how Jesus is the solution to the things that we struggle with and the things that we need. So Lord, may the gospel be made clear in our minds and our hearts today, and may we rejoice in you as a result. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever felt an earthquake? Anybody? couple yeah so I remember the first time I grew up here in Colorado but the first time I experienced an earthquake I was in Santa Cruz California I was visiting my family and we were walking down the boardwalk there in Santa Cruz and I felt the ground move and if you ever felt an earthquake it kind of feels like these waves like you're standing on and the ground is waving which it actually is and so at first I looked around and nobody was doing anything like I thought maybe it's just me maybe I just have vertigo or something and so I looked around and and nobody's doing anything so I asked my aunt I'm like is this an earthquake and she's like yeah of course it's an earthquake we have them all the time like she did not even care like it's just uh you know just keep going on with your day now that was a small earthquake but sometimes there are big earthquakes and some earthquakes can be absolutely devastating when large earthquakes happen especially in populated areas and it shakes the foundations of buildings and sometimes if it's not built from the right stuff it will collapse. If it doesn't have a proper foundation, the shaking will cause that building to collapse. And the book of Hebrews is written to people whose lives were being shaken. They were being shaken by problems and difficulties and hardships and sufferings and persecutions. And these things had come into their lives and they had shaken them to the core. This letter was written to them to show them how how if they're not rooted and grounded in something that makes them made of the right stuff, then their lives will indeed crumble and collapse. If they're not made of the right stuff, if they don't have the right foundation, then of course when the shaking comes, they will not be able to stand. But if you are made from the right stuff, if you do have the right foundation, then you will be able to stand no matter what things come your way or what shakes your life. And the answer to that 
how to be made of the right stuff, how to have the right foundation, the solution is found in Jesus. That's the core message of this book. In the section we're looking at today, what we're seeing here is that Jesus is the only way. In Jesus alone can you have a truly unshakable hope. A truly unshakable hope. And he's going to explain to us how that is and why that is and how that works. So the title of today's message is A Consuming Fire. A Consuming Fire. There are three things that this section talks to us about. Number one, we're going to see in verses 14 through 17, we see the key issue. The key issue. And then in verses 18 through 21, we see the enduring problem. And finally, in verses 22 through 29, we see our brilliant hope. So the key issue, the enduring problem, and our brilliant hope. The key issue, I'll give it away right now, is holiness. That is the key issue. The key issue is holiness. This section begins with what seems to be kind of a very general and an almost predictable call to basically just be a good and decent person, to have basic morals. And here's what it says. Now, verse 14, the very first part, it says, strive for peace with everyone. In other words, don't be a contentious person. Be a decent human being. As much as depends on you, make it your goal to live at peace with other people. Seek peace with other people. Now, sometimes that will mean deferring to other people. Sometimes it will mean giving up what you want, your prerogative for other people's sake, rather than always insisting on having your own way or insisting that people do what you want them to do the way that you want them to do it. Living at peace with other people means being kind. It means being generous. And so it's, it's worth asking ourselves this question. Are you a person who is consistently finding yourself in conflict with other people? I'll say that again. Are you a person who consistently finds yourself in conflict with other people? I would say that we live in a very confrontational culture. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but that's the kind of culture we live in. A culture of confrontation. We live in a culture that enjoys controversy, seeks out controversy, and conflict, and confrontation. And our culture, I would say, is very emotionally charged, right? We, we're not okay with people disagreeing with us. We take it personally, like it's an attack on our character when someone disagrees with our opinions. We tend to get offended very easily, and we tend towards kind of an us-and-them type of a language and thinking, which leads to division, it leads to anger, it leads to bitterness, it leads to divorce divisiveness uh, amongst not just individuals but amongst groups of people and it very much affects our society. We do this when it comes to politics. Many Christians do it when it comes to theology and that's not good. And notice though what it says in verse 15. It says not only should we seek peace with all people but verse 15 says see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and defiles many. No root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and defiles many. That's a real danger. See, if we allow bitterness towards other people to grow and to take root within our hearts and our minds, well, let's see what some of the things that it does. Let's see, if someone offends you or hurts you in some way, and rather than forgiving them or seeking reconciliation with them, instead you let it fester, you let it grow, and, and then resentment and anger and hostility towards them begins to brew as a kind of just wicked brew in your heart and inside your mind. Let me ask you, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever experienced that where, where one little thing kind of starts this, this process in motion, where something starts brewing inside of you, it starts to take root in your heart and in your mind, and you begin to feel increasingly resentful, and hostile towards another person. Think about the picture he's painting here. He says that bitterness is like a root. 
Now, I don't know how many of you, you, if you have a yard, you probably get weeds in your yard. Or if you have a garden, you know what it's like to have weeds in your garden. And you know what, how it works, right? If you just pluck the top of the weed and you don't get rid of the root that goes underneath the surface, then you might make it look good for a moment, but you haven't solved any problems. In fact, sometimes you made it worse, right? You have to pull those things up by the roots but that's very difficult to do because when they go down under the ground, they put these roots out and they have arms and fingers that go out in a bunch of different directions because those things start to spread under the ground. They have these little tentacles that go out in all these directions. So even when you try to pull it up, even just part of the root can remain there under the surface. So I have a device at my house called a weed whacker, which I think should probably actually be renamed and called a weed spreader because here's what it does. It has this string on it and it just whips these weeds, right? So it just knocks off the top of the weeds. But in doing that, what it tends to do is it tends to throw weeds all over your yard and then cause the seeds and everything, the pollen, to... Uh, go and spread and to pollinate and cause more weeds to grow. So it's just a weed spreader. If you want to have weeds all over your yard, then definitely use a weed whacker. And that's kind of what bitterness is like, right? It's a weed that grows in your soul. If you don't pull it up by the roots, then eventually it will take over. It will spread and it will destroy your heart. It will destroy you from the inside. It will spread and it will spread to others. See, that's the thing about weeds. They usually don't just stay by themselves. They tend to spread to others. And bitterness does the same thing. It doesn't, it's not content to just stay with one person. It tends to spread until it takes everything over. So think about what a weed does. It, goes, it, it takes root, and then it, it puts roots down below the surface. And then what it does is it, those roots suck up all the nutrients that the good plants need in order to grow. So as the weeds grow, the other plants are choked out. They become weaker and weaker and weaker as a result. And that is what bitterness does in our lives as well. It consumes our energy. It consumes our time. It consumes our focus. And it gives us nothing in return. Nothing. It's been said that holding on to bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. In the end, you're the one who's destroyed by it, not the other person. In the end, you're the one who suffers from it, and you're the one who's destroyed by it. It's like a weed that puts its roots down deep in your heart and causes your joy and your life to wither up because it's consuming all the nutrients, all those good resources, time and energy. I remember I had a friend... You know, we were friends in high school, and then I moved away to Hungary and as a missionary. And then uh, I came back one time, and I talked to her, and, and she told me, this is like, I hadn't seen her for three years, and I went to lunch with a group of friends, and she told me, you know, I was really angry at you for the last three years, but I just now forgave you. And she's like, yeah, I lost a ton of sleep and energy. I was just so bitter against you. And I was like, you know, that's a really good picture of it, because this whole time, I thought about it zero times. In two years, or three years, I was perfectly happy, just living every day with a smile on my face, under the sun, kind of skipping around, strolling in the park, having a great life. And, you know, you can imagine her just bitter this whole time and having this gloomy cloud over her life for three years. And that's a great picture of it is that she's drinking poison and expecting me to die, but I'm not affected by it. She's only hurting herself. That's what bitterness is like. It's like a weed. Verse 15 reminds us again that bitterness spreads. It defiles others. In other words, it's contagious. It's like a virus. If you don't deal with it, if you don't pull it up by the roots, then not only will it destroy you, but it will defile others. And so it's very important that if there is bitterness in your heart towards another person, if there's resentment, if there's a grudge, so to say, you root it out. 
that you strive to live at peace with others, that you forgive those who've sinned against you, just as God in Christ has forgiven you, because if you don't, it will destroy you, and it will hurt others. So let me ask you this. Are you harboring any bitterness in your heart towards anyone else? Is there anyone in your life whom you need to forgive or to seek reconciliation with? And maybe you'd say, well, maybe, but they don't deserve to be forgiven. I mean, well, let's put it this way. Even if I should forgive them, They've never asked me for forgiveness. So how can I forgive a person who has never apologized for what they've done? You know, it'll be like as if I'm saying that what they did was okay, that there was no problem with it or that it was no big deal. Well, here's what I would tell you. In order for you to forgive a person, you don't have to wait for them to apologize. You don't have to. You can forgive them first. In fact, I would say for the sake of your own heart, for the sake of your own soul, you must forgive them first before they ever come to you and apologize. You know the Lord's Prayer, Jesus, when he taught his disciples how to pray? This was part of it. He said, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. In other words, Jesus said, not only there he implies it, but elsewhere he says it directly. That if we withhold forgiveness from other people, God will actually withhold forgiveness from us. And what that means is that your forgiving someone is not contingent on them asking you for forgiveness first. You can forgive them in your heart whether they ask for it or not. Last year, a friend of mine, uh, I got to talking to a friend of mine, and she was telling me this story about how she grew up and she had a very bad relationship with her mother. Her mom drank a lot and was emotionally abusive and did a lot of things which really hurt this friend of mine. And when she became an adult and she left home, she cut off contact with her mom and they were estranged from each other for several years. And when this friend of mine then became a Christian in her late 20s, she realized that she needs to forgive her mom. She can't go on holding on to bitterness. She had to let go of this bitterness she'd been hanging on to for all these years. So she reached out to her mom and she sought reconciliation. And her mom told her this. She said, hey, look, um, you became a Christian. That's your thing. And, and this girl had said, you know, I became a Christian. My attitude towards you has changed. I'd really like a good relationship with you. And her mom said, look, if you want to be a Christian, fine. If you want to have a good relationship with me, then that's up to you because I don't feel that I've done anything that I need to apologize for. And so for years, this friend, after having become a Christian, she would regularly reach out to her mom and seek peace with her, but her mom would refuse to recognize that she had done anything wrong, and she refused to reciprocate that sentiment until one year, many years later, her mom finally came to her and talked to her, and in tears, her mom said, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry for everything I did. I'm so sorry for everything I've done. And, and my friend's response to her mom was, Mom, I've already forgiven you. I forgave you years ago. And I love this. Her mom said to her, she said, I know. That's what gave me the courage to say I'm sorry. The fact that she knew that her daughter had already forgiven her, even though she hadn't apologized, that's what gave her the courage to say that she was sorry. You see, Jesus, uh, the Bible tells us that Jesus came and he gave his life for us even when we didn't love him yet, even when we were not yet repentant, even when we treated him as if he was our enemy. He loved us and he laid down his life for us. See, that's the gospel. That's the model and the motivation for how we are now to live if we have put our faith in him and we've been born again to new life. So strive for peace with all people. Make sure that no root of bitterness grows up and defiles you or defiles other people through you. Forgive people, even if they don't apologize, even if they don't ask for it. Let go of bitterness or for your own heart's sake. But there's a bigger issue, and that's why this section is called the key issue. There's a bigger issue, 
of which bitterness and strife are symptoms of this issue. So if we were only to just talk about, hey, you know, forgive people and let go of bitterness, we're not actually dealing with the root. So that's a weed, right? But we're not dealing with the root, are we? We're just doing essentially what I just talked about, right? We're just plucking off the top. It looks good for a moment, but we're not dealing with the root issue. So what is the root issue? What is the key issue? And and there is a bigger issue at stake of which bitterness and strife are only symptoms of the underlying issue, the true issue. And that issue, this section tells us, is holiness. Holiness. Now, what is holiness? Well, look what it says in verse 14. This is interesting. It says, strive for the holiness without which... No one will see the Lord. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then look at what it says in verse 16. See to it that no one is unholy. There's that word again, holiness. See to it that no one is unholy like Esau, who forfeited his blessing for some momentary pleasure, but there was no way for him to get it back. See, the key issue underlying all other issues in our hearts and in our lives is the issue of holiness. So what's holiness? Holiness be defined as perfection, rightness, the way things are meant to be, the way that we ought to be, the way that we, the way that things in the world should rightly be and the way that we should rightly be. The fact that God is holy means that God is set apart. He is other. He is different from us. He's not like us. We have flaws. He doesn't. We are imperfect. He is perfect. Think about what this is saying. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see God. No one will see God without this holiness. Without holiness, we cannot, we will not see God. In other words, what God desires from us, what God requires of us, is nothing short of perfection. Nothing short of perfection. Jesus himself said this. Listen to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, I've met some people who say, well, I'm not into the Bible, I just really like the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, you like the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. That's what God requires of us. Now, you might argue with that and say, wait a second. I mean, nobody's perfect, right? Like, surely God can't expect us to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. But isn't that indeed what it's saying? That that is, in fact, the standard. That this is the expectation. And if that is the case, and it really seems to be the case, well, then doesn't that create a gigantic, enormous problem for us. Because as we all agree, none of us are perfect. The Bible, again, uh, agrees with that. It says, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says that there is none who is righteous, no, not one. Somebody out there might argue with it, and they might say this. Look, well, that might be what the Bible says, but I don't really care. Because I don't need the Bible to tell me how to live. I can figure that out on my own. I can figure out for myself how I should live and what I should do and what I shouldn't do and what it means to be a decent person. I can figure that out on my own. I can make my own standards or I can go by society's standards. I don't need the Bible to tell me what to do. And, and a lot of people would say, you know what, Here, here's the way I face life. I think that all that matters is just trying your hardest to be a decent person and to treat others with kindness and respect. And if you do that, well, then, you know, you'll be fine. See, that's how most people in society, our society, approach life. Most people look themselves in the mirror, and this is how they they cope with life. They say, I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty decent person. I may not be perfect, but I've tried my best, and I'm certainly better than a whole lot of other people out there. And so, therefore, you know, I've tried hard to be a good person, and I think for the most part, I've done a pretty good job. 
I think that 99% of people in the world would say that. There's like that one guy out there who's like, yeah, actually, I'm just a terrible person. But 99% of people are like, no, you know what? I'm a pretty decent person. I maybe have made some mistakes, but I generally try hard to be a, person, a good person, and I've done a pretty good job. And if God were to call me into account one day, that's what I would say to him. I'm, I'm not perfect. I've made a couple mistakes. But I try to be a decent person, and I try to treat other people well, and I think I've done fairly well at it. But let's think about that. Let's analyze that. Let's see if we're, if we're actually accurate in saying that. Or if anybody is actually accurate in saying that. Let's take, for example, the golden rule. Right? It's kind of universally accepted as the premise of decency. So the golden rule is treat other people the way that you would like to be treated. And the fact is that if you are honest, if I am honest about my life, none of us have ever lived up to that for even one day in our lives to be completely honest. Like, we would all agree that that is a good thing to do, to treat other people the way that you would like to be treated. But if we're honest, we have to admit that we have not put the same effort into understanding other people that we expect that they will put into understanding us. If we're honest, we have to admit that we have not put the same effort into meeting the needs of other people that we expect the people would put into meeting our needs. In other words, even if you say, hey, I think that all that matters is just trying to be a good person and doing your best and being a decent, decent guy or girl, the, the fact is that none of us even live up to that. In other words, none of us even live up to our own standards. If we were to set the standards, we still don't live up to them. All of us, even by our own standards, are moral failures. Now, where am I going with this? I'm not, I'm not going on this just to be a downer. I, I, I want to show you something. But here's the deal. God's standard is even higher. What God requires of us is nothing short of perfection. That's what we just read in the Bible. And apart from that, it says none of us will ever see God. And that's a huge problem because, as we all agree, none of us are perfect. In Isaiah 59, we're told that because we aren't perfect and, and because we failed, we have fallen short and therefore we are separated from God. We are cut off. And that's a big problem. And that brings us to our second point, which is the enduring problem that God is unapproachable, the unapproachable God. Verses 18 through 21, we read about how God is unapproachable. Verse 18 and through 24 is actually one section that goes together. And, and what he does in this section is he makes a contrast between two mountains. The one, on the one hand, he talks about Mount Sinai, although he doesn't name it, but that's what he's talking about. And in the second one, he talks about Mount Zion. In verse 18, he says, you have not come to Mount Sinai. And then in verse 22, he says, instead, you have come to Mount Zion. So what are these two mountains? What do they signify? And what is the writer trying to say? Mount Zion was the mountain on which in the Old Testament, we read that God gave the Israelites, his people, the law, the Ten Commandments and the law, at Mount Sinai after he had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. So Mount Zion, on the other hand, is a name for Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem is a city which is built on top of a mountain, and one of the names of Jerusalem is Zion. Mount Zion, Jerusalem, was where the temple was located, and Zion was designed to be an earthly representation, an earthly picture of what heaven would be like, the place where God and people would dwell together. 
But if Mount Zion speaks of being with God and being in the presence of God, Mount Sinai speaks about separation from God. And really, the issue this is bringing up is a very important one. It's this. It's bringing up this question. How can we, who are separated from God, how can we ever come to know God and be with God for now and for eternity? Because that's the issue that we run into here. Without holiness, no one can see God. We're cut off from God. Unless we're perfect, we cannot come in. We cannot be saved. We cannot know God. And one of the greatest illustrations of this is the one he touches on here, that we're cut off and separated from God. It's illustrated by this event that took place on Mount Sinai. And we read about this in Exodus chapter 19. So if you like to cross-reference, you can flip over there. Just write it down. Exodus chapter 19. Here's what's happening in that section. God has brought the people of Israel out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He has set them free and he's brought them through the Red Sea into the wilderness and now he's going to lead them to the promised land. And so one day they're camped at the base of this mountain, this big mountain, and God speaks to Moses and he tells Moses to tell the people to get ready because he says in three days time I'm going to appear to them and I'm going to speak to them and I'm going to tell them my will for their lives. I'm going to speak to the people and tell them my will for their lives. So imagine, you know, try to put yourself in their shoes. How would you feel about that if you knew that in three days' time, God was going to show up and he was going to tell you his will for your life? Well, you'd probably be pretty excited about that. I know I would be. Maybe you'd say, man, if God appeared to me directly and God told me what he wanted me to do, there would just be no doubt in my mind. I would absolutely do it. And in fact, if God showed up to me, I would, I would have no doubt in believing in God and I would absolutely do whatever he told me to do. And that's exactly how these people felt. They were excited. They couldn't wait. It's like, man, this is awesome. God's going to appear to us. He's going to speak to us. This is going to be great. And then... God speaks to Moses again, like a, a little bit later, and he says, okay, here's, here's how I want you to tell the people to get ready for me to come and speak to them. Here's what I want you to do. Tell everybody, wash their clothes, make themselves presentable. Moses is like, all right, got it. Passes on the message. Everybody's like, cool, we'll make ourselves presentable, put on our good clothes, got it, check. And then he says, okay, but then God tells him, but there's one more thing. There's one more thing I want you to do. I want you to create a perimeter. Draw a line in the sand, maybe put some rocks, create a perimeter around the mountain, in the front of the mountain, and tell the people, if they cross that line, then they will be put to death. And he says, if anybody crosses that line, they will be put to death. And you're like, wait, what? This isn't as fun as I thought it was, right? Like, I, I thought this was going to be cool, but now you're talking about, like, people dying and stuff, and I'm not really excited about that. Put to death? Are you serious? Did I hear you right? Why? It was to communicate something very simple and very important to them that there are lines there are boundaries which we cannot cross and if we cross those lines then the consequence of crossing the line is death because when God appears on the mountain he comes to them and he gives them his law beginning with the ten commandments and with those laws and, and what they represent are lines they're boundary markers they're things that cannot be crossed and if you cross them then the consequence of crossing them is death and so what happens is God appears the next day and, and he appears to speak to them. And the way he appears is in a firestorm, a firestorm upon the mountain. And there's an earthquake, there's smoke, crashes of thunder, lightning, the earth shakes, rocks are breaking in half. And we read there in Exodus 19 that this is what happened and the people responded and they were absolutely terrified. They were terrified. And not only were they terrified, but they begged for it to stop. You know, you can imagine being so excited about seeing God appear and hearing God's voice, and then it happens, and you say, 
please stop. I can't take this anymore. They were scared. They were intimidated. They were shaken to their core. And they were quite sure that they were all going to die. And that's what the writer talks about here in verses 18 through 21. He's recounting this scene. And he says, we have not come to Mount Sinai. We have not come to this mountain, a mountain blazing with fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further words would be spoken. And he says, indeed, it was so terrifying that Moses said, I tremble with fear. See, whereas originally they had been excited to hear from God, now they're terrified. They, they wanted to stop because they realize that there is no way that they can live up to what, what God demands of them. And this terrible realization that, that if they can't live up to what God requires of them, then they, they will be cut off from God and they will die. And, and as they hear God's laws spoken audibly, they come to this terrible realization that they have already actually crossed the line. They've already done it. They've already crossed the line. And let me ask you this. Have you ever lied? Have you ever skipped church to get some work done? You don't have to answer that. Have you ever been dishonest? Have you ever been disrespectful to your parents? If you've ever looked at someone else and what they had and said, I wish that was mine and not theirs. Now that's just, those are just four. That's just four out of ten commandments. I've done all of those things. I probably did them this last week. You know, not intentionally, but even unintentionally. And my guess is that you probably have too. And what that means is that not only did they cross the line, but it means that I've crossed the line. It means that you've probably crossed the line. And what that means is that we failed to be holy. We failed to meet that standard of perfection. And the consequence is not just that we're cut off from God. The consequence of failing to live up to the standard is actually death, judgment. In other words, we have a debt that we have no means to pay. And this is an enduring problem. All of us have fallen short of this perfect standard, and the wages of that, the Bible says, is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death for our souls. My hope was to bring you to the point of despair, and now my hope is to turn the corner and show you our brilliant hope. And that's our third point, our brilliant hope. See, there is good news, and the good news is that there's another mountain. Not just Mount Sinai, but there's another mountain other than Mount Sinai, and that mountain is Mount Zion. Check out what it says, verses 22 through 29. He says in verse 22, You have not come, though, to Mount Sinai. Instead, you've come to a different mountain. You have come to Mount Zion. Check out what he says, The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. See, there's our hope. See, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, was not only a place where the temple was located, but there was something else that happened on Mount Zion that was very significant. Just as when God appeared on Mount Sinai, God also appeared another time on Mount Zion. And just as when God appeared on Mount Sinai, there was an earthquake. The earth shook and darkness filled the sky. And there was loud wailing and crying out as people realized they were incapable of meeting God's standards. In the same way, on that other mountain, on Mount Zion, Jerusalem, when God appeared, what happened? Well, we read in Matthew 27 that as Jesus hung on the cross. The earth shook. That darkness filled the sky from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. And then what happened? Was there loud wailing and crying? Absolutely. It was Jesus himself crying out, wailing himself. On Mount Zion, it wasn't the people crying out. It was just one man. That man was Jesus. And it wasn't just any old man. See, he was God come to us as one of us to live amongst us. And he lived a perfect life. Remember that? We talked about that earlier. The key issue, holiness. The life that you and I should have lived, he lived it. 
completely and truly holy. And he, Jesus, he went up that mountain, Mount Zion, on his own accord. And he was arrested, he was beaten, he was crucified. And we read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, that as he hung on the cross, darkness covered all the earth for three hours. And Jesus cries out to the Father, crying out, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was complete and utter terror. And then as Jesus breathed his last and he died, we read that the earth shook and rocks were split. Does that sound familiar? Earthquake, darkness, gloom, separation from God, and crying out. What's happening? It's Mount Sinai all over again, except this time it's Jesus who is getting the judgment. Not the judgment that he deserved, but the judgment that we deserve. You see how it worked? We crossed the line, but he paid the price on our behalf. On Mount Zion, God appeared not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment on your behalf. He was shaken to the core. He took the fire. He cried out so that we could enter in through him. So that rather than separation, you could be reconciled to God. You could be brought near. And the question for you today is this. What mountain will you come to? Will you come to Mount Sinai or will you come to Mount Zion? It's actually talked about in a couple places in the Bible. For example, in Galatians, uh, the writer does the same thing. He says, will you come to Mount Sinai, the place of the law, or will you come to Mount Zion, the place of the promise? Will you come to God on the basis that you have tried your best to be a pretty good and decent person? Is that what you will say if he calls you into account? Or will you come to God on the basis of Jesus and what he did for you on the cross there on Mount Zion? Our only hope is to come to Zion, to come to God on the basis of what Jesus did for you on the cross when he, the only Holy One, died on your behalf. That is the way, the only way for you to experience the Zion, which is to come, the heavenly Jerusalem. That is the only way for your name to be written on the roll call of heaven, the book of life, for you to be counted amongst those who are being saved and being made righteous in Jesus. It's by you coming to Jesus, putting your trust in what he did for you on Mount Zion, on the cross, where he took your place in judgment so that you could come near to God and you could enter in forever. Now just as we conclude, remember, this letter was written to people whose lives had been shaken to the core by difficulties and hardships to the point where they were thinking about giving up on their faith and giving up on Christianity and Jesus. And the writer is writing to tell them, look, there are two options and only two options. You either come to Mount Sinai or you come to Mount Zion. Either you stand before God based on your own ability, your own efforts to try and meet his standards, or you come to God on the basis of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Those are the two options. If you go away from Jesus, you'll be going back to Mount Sinai. You'll be facing the death penalty for crossing the line. But if instead, if you put your faith in Jesus, who already took that penalty on your behalf, then not only is that amazing in itself, but check this out. Verses 27 and 28 and verse 29, he says this. All of the things that come into your life, that shake your life, the fiery trials, the hardships that you face, not only will God save your soul, but God will use those things, the fiery trials, the hardships, God will use those things not to judge you, not to destroy you because Jesus was already judged for you, but God will use those fiery trials. He will use those things that shake your life. He will actually use them to accomplish good things and to make you into something great. He will use the fire to burn away the things that don't belong, the things that are holding you back and bogging you down. He will use, he will shake, and it says that he will remove the things which don't belong. In other words, God will take all things and use them for your ultimate good, for his ultimate glory, and, and for your greater joy.
because of Jesus, because of what he did for us, because he was shaken to the core, because he took the fire, we can receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Eternal life, salvation, forgiveness, grace, a new identity, a new future, a purpose and a calling of our lives. And those are things which nothing and no one can ever take away from us. They are unshakable unshakable promises which give us an unshakable hope and that unshakable hope can give you an unshakable joy. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. He is the one by whom we can have access to God because Jesus, the Holy One, on the cross, our sins were imputed to him so that his righteousness and his holiness could be imputed to us. That's the great exchange. He got the short end of it. We get the lion's share of it. In him, we become righteous and holy before God so that we can actually have the holiness without which no one can ever see God. We, we can live out that life that new life as a person who has been made right with God. See, when you've received that kind of grace, it sets you free to show grace to others. It sets you free to let go of your bitterness and resentment towards others and forgive them as God has forgiven you. You can live at peace with other people. You can show them grace because God has shown grace to you because now you have peace with God. And it will change, absolutely, it will change the way that you relate to your spouse, the way that you relate to your boss, your coworkers. Everyone in your life. It makes you a completely new person and gives you a new life. Furthermore, if you make Jesus and what he did for you, if you make that the source of your greatest hope, the source of your greatest joy, then there is nothing in life or in death that can ever take that away from you. In fact, anything in life and death can only bring you closer to it if he is the source of your greatest hope and greatest joy. The hardships and difficulties of this life will only serve to bring you closer to it. They will only remove from your life those things which didn't need to be there anyway. And what that means for you is greater hope and greater joy. And there are two ways that this text tells us to respond to this overwhelmingly good news. Number one, he says we are make, to make sure that we do not miss out on receiving the grace of God. And number two, it says we are to offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Verse 15 says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Verse 25 says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking to you. So in other words, that means for you and I today, if God is speaking to us and he's inviting us today to receive his grace and to receive his forgiveness and his salvation, the way that you do that is by putting your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and in what he did for you on the cross. And so I want to encourage you with the words of this text May none of us fail to obtain the grace of God. May none of us close our ears to his voice speaking to us today, but may we respond. And secondly, as we receive his grace, may we respond by giving him acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And that's what we're going to do now as we close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great grace to us. We thank you for your love for us. Lord, we thank you that on Mount Zion, Lord, you took the price for what we deserve because of what happened on Mount Sinai. Lord, thank you that although we were the ones who crossed the line, you were the ones, you were the one who took the, the judgment for us so that we might have life in you. And Lord, I thank you for that, that this great exchange that you took our sins from us and you gave us your righteousness and your holiness. 
Lord, we thank you for that. And, and we receive that today. And we say, thank you, Lord. May we live, may we walk in that new holiness, Lord. May you deal with the root issue of our hearts, Lord, so that we're not just plucking off the top of the weeds, but Lord, so that we might truly be cleansed and renewed and new people in you. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.